0: Welcome to Here We Grow, a grassroots podcast by Southwest Georgia Farm Credit focused on education and inspiring growth down on the farm, at home, and in rural communities. Whether you're a farmer or farm her, advocate, land lover, or southern dweller, we have industry experts and homegrown leaders ready to share their insights with you. Thanks for listening. Here we grow again with Episode 5 of our new podcast. I'm your host, Billy Billings, a Relationship Manager with Southwest Georgia Farm Credit. Today, we welcome back Farm Credit Relationship Manager, Brant Harrell, from Episode 4, and a new guest, Mr. Ashley Gardner, CPA. They're here with me in the studio to share their insights and expertise on farms in transition, succession planning, and financial planning for long-term success of your farm or agriculture operation. Brant and Ashley, thanks for joining me.
1: Hello, Billy. I appreciate you letting me be here.
2: Hey, Billy. Hey, Ashley. Appreciate y'all being here and coming, and uh, look forward to a good podcast today.
0: Welcome. Hey, appreciate y'all joining me today. Today, we're just going to, like I said, talk about some few things that seems common knowledge to us, but our borrowers or future borrowers or local farmers may, may need help with. Ashley, you're first on my list today. I'm going to let you kind of take the floor for a minute. Ashley Garner is a partner at Yeomans and Gardner CPAs and is a licensed certified public accountant in Georgia and Florida. He has practiced public accounting for 26 years and is a member of the American Institute of CPAs, a member of Georgia's Society of CPAs, and Florida's Institute of CPAs. He was raised on a farm in southern Decatur County, Georgia, and happily serves agriculture and agribusinesses, clients in southwest Georgia and Florida's Big Bend regions. Thanks, Ashley.
1: Well, thank you, Billy. I appreciate you letting me be here today.
0: Thanks for joining us. So, uh, like I said, I'm going to give you the floor for a l- minute, uh, just just tell us about what you see in your day-to-day work, uh, more, more so with your agriculture customers, and then uh, maybe some of the challenges that, uh, they, that might be coming down the pipeline for them.
1: Well, I guess when it comes to succession planning, um, one of the first questions or, or what drives people to my office is, what do I need to do to, to save taxes or save on the estate tax? And um, right now we can kind of give a pleasant surprise to that answer is, is most people don't have an estate tax issue. Currently, the estate tax is, has an exemption worth $12 million, uh, a little more than $12 million, and with a married couple, that's $24 million. Unfortunately, those amounts are set to be cut in half in 2026, so we, we have to kind of watch the, the political agenda and the legislation that may be coming out of Congress to see if those amounts are, are made permanent or not. Um, with, a, with one exception, the estate exemptions have never decreased over the years. In 2010, the estate tax was actually repealed and um, in 2011 it was brought back and that was the only time we've had a decrease in the exemption amounts. So it's, we're kind of curious to see what Congress is going to do if they're going to um, to keep these elevated estate exemptions uh, higher or if they will in fact revert back to um, to uh, half the current amount in 2026. So. For the most part, though, uh, a, either a $12 million or $24 million exemption is, is a gracious amount in order for most farmers to avoid having an estate tax issue. So the next question we ask is, well, if we don't have an estate problem, what do you want to happen? And surprisingly, that's a much harder question for a client to answer. And uh, it's one that that I, I think it takes a family discussion and, and some family time to to decide is, is if, if dad or mom's no longer here, what do we want to happen, and and how are we going to keep the farm together, and um, and that's something that while we're we're tax counsel and and we, we kind of come in and playing that role of helping um, determine what the answer to that question is, but that that is a much harder question to answer.
0: Okay, um, another question I get all the time um, is ten thirty one exchange. When can it be applied? Um, and, and from my little knowledge of a 1031 exchange, my customers come to me, and they've, they've sold a property, whether in-state or out-of-state, um, for a certain amount, and they are trying to, I guess, dodge or pass on the capital gains or income tax. Is that correct?
1: Yes. We've actually had some changes recently to the, to the like-kind exchange rules, the section, code section 1031, like you said. And now um, like-kind of exchange rules no longer apply to personal property but they do continue to apply to real estate. So swapping off a, a piece of farmland or, or a building or something certainly qualifies for a kind of exchange treatment. And what happens in that situation is, is you're not getting out of the income tax um, on selling the land, but you're deferring it by buying replacement property. But ultimately, if that, proper, that replacement property is ever disposed of, that deferred income tax will come back into play and, and you'll owe it. So it is a good way to, to defer taxes A lot of people think that you're getting out of the tax, and that is not always the case.
0: Okay. All right, we're going to circle back on one little uh, aspect that is um, very prevalent in everyone's taxes if you're involved in agriculture, and that is the depreciation of your assets. Um, So, Ashley, can you um, just comment on what you see, what are common depreciation schedules, and what are any uh, recommendations as far as depreciating your, your farm equipment and farm assets? So
1: we actually have a very important tax provision that's expiring at the end of the year. Um, I'm not aware of any potential legislation that would extend it, so it's it's certainly noteworthy and and needs to be realized before the end of the year. But we have what's called bonus depreciation on your federal tax return, which allows you to immediately expense, without any limitation, the cost of of most farm machinery and equipment, uh, most farm buildings, uh, can be deducted immediately. So that expires at the end of the year. We've had bonus depreciation for so long as I can't remember a time without it. Uh, We've had it for probably a decade or longer. So it's interesting to see if the government's going to allow this provision to actually expire at the end of this year. Now, even though bonus depreciation may expire, we also have what's called Section 179 expensing. And as long as the business operation has a profit, you can choose to also deduct the same equipment that you can under bonus depreciation. It's also important to note that the state of Georgia and and other states do not recognize bonus depreciation. So even though you can deduct a new tractor on your federal tax return does not necessarily mean you can deduct it on your state return. Although section 179 expensing will apply to both returns. So it's important to recognize the bonus depreciation is there, but also determining which is more appropriate, the bonus expensing or the section 179 expensing to kind of maximize those deductions on both your federal and your state income tax returns.
0: Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. You know,
2: between now and the end of the year, actually, we'll get a lot of visits from farming operations that are having this exact same conversation as they're looking to uh, renovate their line of equipment um, and, and trying to decide on whether to lease it or, or take out a loan or, or perhaps pay cash. And uh, so, between now and the end of the year, we usually recommend uh, a farming operation sit down with their CPA. Do you, is that prevalent now? Do most operations come and have some tax planning toward the end of the year?
1: Yes, and we actually encourage them to because a lot, of, a lot of clients won't understand when their peanuts are redeemed out of the loan program and when income is triggered from that redemption. They don't understand the deductibility of, of their equipment or, or when's the proper time to deduct it. There's many times when we'll, we'll sit down and they'll buy a new, a new tractor, which is eligible for the bonus depreciation or bonus expensing, but we decide to, to expense that over five or seven years depending on the asset because that's more beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. So deducting everything up front may not be the right answer for everybody. So it's important to kind of know what the options are and, and to kind of maximize those deductions for, for, uh, for tax savings.
2: You know, one pitfall we experience a lot of times is uh, we, we work with cash flows, not necessarily net income. Uh, is the same thing. And so if they come to you and depreciate a piece of equipment out, but next year they have another tax bill and no depreciation, then we have a double crimp on the cash flow. you in agreement with that?
1: I try to warn every one of my clients. I'm not sure it always registers with them. But when you finance a piece of equipment, deducting it up front, is you always have to be aware that next year you have to earn a profit in order to have the money to pay the loan back. But there's no additional deduction that year. So you're having to pay tax on money you don't have anymore, which is always difficult. <laughs> so I prefer to, to uh, try to match the deduction for a piece of property with the cash flow for the payments. Um, now, there's times when because of, of tax matters or the client just decides to, we'll go ahead and expense something up front even though it's not paid for. But I prefer to match the, the tax deductions with the cash flow. It makes budgeting for taxes. It makes uh, paying those taxes a lot easier when you actually have the money in the bank account to, to pay them versus, versus having to pay back on a note.
2: We're getting set up at, at Farm Credit. We're doing more leases, um, and that seems to be uh, – react to that. How, how does a lease come into effect if a farmer operation comes into you and, and tells you they want to lease a piece of equipment or a building?
1: Well, there's two types of leases that we deal with. Uh, in, the t- in tax law, we have an operating lease and a capital lease. So uh, to not get in too much detail, let's say that at the end of the lease, there's a dollar buyout provision. That's a capital lease. We can go and treat it as if you bought that property and financed it, and we can deduct the property using bonus depreciation or Section 179 expensing if we choose to. Versus a capital lease, the most we can deduct is the amount of the annual lease payment. So from a, an accountant or a tax accountant's perspective, it's the timing of the deduction. Now, obviously, in your world of finance, we're looking at cash flow and, and, and interest rates and that sort of thing to figure out which is the best deal. But when it comes to, to a pure tax decision, we always want to look a little deeper, determine what type of lease it is and what, what the timing of the deduction is going to be. In many cases, someone will lease a tractor under a, an operating lease, expecting to deduct the full cost of the tractor, and, and we tell them, no, we're only limited to the amount of the lease payment, uh, which can be kind of disappointing when they counted on that to, to help control their taxes for that year.
2: But something on like a uh, a metal building. What what's the usual depreciation life on a on a metal building?
1: Uh, it depends on the use of it. If it's a single use agricultural building versus a multi use. So we're looking at a chicken house or a grain bin compared to a uh, a barn. Mm-hmm. So that could be up to 15 years. It could be 10 years depending on the use of it. But your typically your recovery period is 10 to 15 years on a a farm building.
2: Well, usually when we're presented with the opportunity to either uh, lease or purchase and finance. Usually, what we're doing is is putting together a, a lease proposal and then an amortization schedule to send to uh, their CPA. Uh, is there anything else that we need to be looking at and putting together for them to bring to you? I think um,
1: always having an upfront conversation. So we once the lease documents are signed and the money's changed hands, it's hard to it's hard to provide guidance and input, right?
2: It's hard to go back. <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> Y'all tend not to want to shred that paper once it's been signed. So um, I think having a, an upfront conversation, to, to it may be the, the best. Sometimes the, the best form of financing does not lead to the, to the best form of tax treatment. And just realizing that up front. And I tell my clients all the time, there's always a non-tax reason to do something. You just need to understand there's going to be tax consequences. And, and uh, I've seen some, some great lease opportunities where, where the absolute best answer was is to lease it, even though it might limit some tax deductions. That was the best means of financing for that particular transaction but um but i tend to have those conversations after it's too late uh, and and having it up front or or hey you know saying hey can you have you had discussed this with your accountant and, and making sure this is the ramifications are understood is is awful important
2: do you have any idea what percentage of farming operations come to you for for tax advice um maybe beforehand before the the transaction's taking place you have hit on that several times.
1: I, I was going to say it's 0.00001%. <laughs> uh, that's an estimate, not an absolute calculation. But, yeah, uh, but yeah it, it's typically the accountant's the last one thought of. You don't think of the accountant until he tells you you need to write a check to the government. So uh, having some of that upfront um, discussion, most of the time this comes up during tax planning, where at least we have a month or so to, to correct an issue or, or to buy another piece of equipment that corrects a previous decision. So it's not always too late to, to have a, a, a discussion after the fact, but it sure gives me a lot
0: more options to advise you with uh, before you enter into a transaction. One other thing I want to hit on is talking about the prepayment of expenses for the next year. I've got a ton of farmers that, that do this practice, and it's it's all great until... What I tell them, I guess the final year, um, there's always got to be a final year where you, you don't have another year to carry those expenses into or prepay for the next year. What, what have you seen in your firm or with your experiences of, the, I guess, the, the bad side of that sword?
1: There is a misconception with the prepayment provision and the tax law is, is many people assume you can just make a deposit payment to the, to the fertilizer vendor or, or to some other supplier. In fact, you're required to, to make a prepayment for very specific merchandise for, for uh, so many pounds of fertilizer at such and such price. And many times the prepayment is actually done wrong because it's just an, uh, an open credit on their, on their account with the supplier. It's not a prepayment for a specific purchase. So there is some exposure for most of the farmers that, that don't understand that provision uh, in an audit situation. So it is important to actually purchase a specific lot of, of, of of merchandise or, or fertilizer or whatever it may be that they're buying, but just creating an, an, a credit balance on the account's payable statement doesn't qualify as a prepayment. Um, it's also very important to realize that, that prepayments do not get you out of taxes. You're kicking the can down the road. And and most farmers their their ultimate tax goal is to pay zero taxes. You know, I do not want to pay taxes is what I hear over and over most commonly. And and when they're making money, when, they're, when, they're, when they are profitable, all that's doing is kicking the can down the road. And they may kick it down the road 10 or 20 years, but ultimately that, that reconciliation has to come. And the further you kick it, the, the bigger the bill is gonna be. And many times that we have an unfortunate, I hate to say many times, that's not the case, but we do have a few times when there's been an, an unfortunate series of events where a farmer just cannot continue to farm. He gets sick, he gets down or disabled, then, and of course, this is unexpected. He contends to continue kicking the can, but all of a sudden he can't kick it anymore. So all those prepayments, all those income deferrals, all the peanut loans hit in one year, and it's created a sizable tax bill. And not only would it put the, the, any money at risk that, that may, may, they may have in the bank, but also puts any land at risk because the government can come in. If they can't pay the bill, then they can put a lien on the property. So a profitable venture should be paying some tax and I think it's important to pay some social security taxes. Uh, social security is, is kind of a political game right now because they're saying it's going to run out of money. And a lot of people think they'll never get their social security benefit. But, uh, I think if, if social security did go in a way, there'll be riots in the streets. So I, I think that program's here to stay. And And not only for yourself when you hit retirement, but also as a means to protect against disability and for your family and your survivors, I think it's important to have some Social Security benefits paid. So prepayments are great. Deferral of income is great. Great tax planning tools. But just to have this mentality where I'm not going to pay any tax can get you in a very bad situation in the future and can prevent you from from having some Social Security benefits for yourself or for your family should you become disabled.
2: As you know, Ashley, usually at the end of the tax year, uh, the first quarter of the next year is when farming operations are coming in and they're looking for their operating notes. It is v- it's very helpful if on their balance sheet or on their financial statement, if there's an entry that shows those prepaid expenses. Otherwise, they're counted somewhat almost toward double as the current farming year, and so it, it makes um, it's not a true picture. So when a client comes to you and and, um, and you, you perform your tax, pre, uh, your tax planning. Is there some paperwork that you can provide to the lender? Uh, maybe it's some draft paperwork that can go along and, and, and give us a skeleton of kind of where you're going, an outline of where you're headed with that, that we can use.
1: So as a small local firm or a regional firm in, in our area, the most common type of financial statement we issue is an ta- income tax basis financial, which mm-hmm. mirrors the tax return. It deducts all those prepayments it, it it does not show the deferred revenue or, or any crop inventory on hand, but working with different lenders like farm credit uh, we can determine the financing needs and we can we can make adjustments to those financial statements and they would show prepaid expenses on the balance sheet versus on the income statement, which of course would 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 increase revenue and and show the asset that the farmer has uh, also crops on hand is is many times um, Cotton crops are not sold to the next year. Peanuts are in the warehouse, and those don't show up as an asset on the tax return. But we can adjust and and have um, departures, is what we call them in our – that's our official lingo, a departure from the income tax basis of accounting. And we can reflect those assets on the farmer's books to give you a better idea of what cash flow is for the year.
2: That that would include dividends from co-ops that are not yet paid out.
1: That's right. Exactly. If we have that information, now that's a little harder to come by. Uh, we don't have the books and records of the, of the co-op, but some of them do provide those, that information to us, and we can put that on the books and show those assets as well.
2: And sometimes they, they give us a hint of what's expected to be marketed, even if 100% of the crop has not, not been sold. So uh, we realize it's not an exact science, but it, it does get us closer to be able to work with someone's finances.
1: And you're right, it does show a, a tax return does not always show the, the current year's profitability, but making those adjustments on a financial statement can give both the farmer and the lender a better idea of what happened during the year.
2: You know, one point we always try to make too is when someone fills out a balance sheet is to have that and their income statement, or in this case, we're talking about their tax return, begin and end on the same date or the same point in time so that um, all, all the entries are accurate.
1: Yeah. And that's generally what we do is have a December 31st year in. Uh, we have, have a couple of uh, farmers who who prefer to do their, their budget on, on a crop year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we accommodate that when, when necessary. But by far, most of our clients use a December 31st year in, and which mirrors the tax return.
2: Yeah. That's usually most helpful for us too. And now there's so many different cycles on most farming operations. It's not a seed in the ground and six months later you've sold it
1: that's right farming is diversified and and uh you know having just one crop line does really doesn't exist anymore No.
0: very nice well if this is your first episode tuning in we uh we want to advise you all to go back and listen to our previous episodes we brought in industry experts across the um, southeast that i mean can help customers in different different perspectives or points in their business venture um, and today we we're joined by mr ashley garner Um, He's CPA here in Southwest Georgia. Next on is Mr. Brant Harrell. Um, For those of you that did not tune in last week, Mr. Brant was born and raised here in Decatur County. He is a graduate of Georgia Southern University. He has farmed for 25 years and has served as a lender and relationship manager at Southwest Georgia Farm Credit for now 15 years. He also serves as a chairman for the Decatur County Agricultural Committee. Welcome back, Brant.
2: Thank you for having me, Bill. It's good to be here today.
0: Yes, sir. All right, well. Like last week and this week, we're going to give you the floor for a minute to kind of tell kind of your personal experiences as well as work experiences, and then we'll kind of tie it back in with what Mr. Ashley just said.
2: Well, well thank you. Um, Ashley's one of the, the uh, CPA prof- He's a professional that I would uh, include here. I would probably also include an attorney uh, to seek legal advice to on a succession plan. Um, there's some points that probably, you know, uh, you need to consider all parties need to be identified that's one of the things and, and some of those parties that we may overlook sometimes are landlords and and tenants um actually mentioned uh, family and what their wants and wishes are for the the uh, future of the farm and and so all those folks have to get together and decide on what works for them and once they do i would i would recommend reducing that to writing. um a written agreement will, will help everybody follow through on what they um on doing their part and and getting what's expected of them, and just having something to refer back to and make sure that uh the operations headed like it needs to be, and was planned to be, um, you know I guess as as a farming operation starts to mature and a person begins to look at turning that operation over or retirement or um you know one of the two's got to happen. So uh in one example would be a pecan operation um. You know, maybe a mature orchard is needs some renovation. But if a farmer's getting close or considering retirement, then dropping money into it um, may not be a he may not feel like that's a good investment. And so, if he's got a stable succession plan there, then both parties would probably benefit from that renovation, and um, they would make a decision that would carry the operation on for many years.
1: Mm-hmm. And what Brent said about putting in writing is is very important. And I think it's also important to have a discussion while mom and dad are still here. Um, a, a lot of times that can be a very awkward discussion to have with family. is, is what's going to happen when we're not here. So many times once mom or dad passes, there's a surprise and, and it, it, it can complicate things and it can make things difficult with the survivors and the heirs um, trying to fulfill mom and dad's wishes when they weren't, you know, when it did come to them as a surprise.
0: Oh, most definitely. We were talking about it um, maybe less ap- last episode or the two episodes ago. I mean, most of the people at these Young Beginning Small Farmer meetings have uh, gray hair on them. Um, and so we are definitely entering a, a point in agriculture, and at least in South Georgia and in the Southeast, where there, there's going to have to be a new generation that steps to the plate. And um, the conversation is better to be had now than later. Um, like I said, while mom and dad are still here, even if mom and dad still have a, a, a plan laid out, I mean, there's definitely a pause period once um, that day comes. So, I mean, talk it out now and put it in paper and it makes things easier down the road. Another question I get all the time um, when dealing with different structures uh, for your business, what, when, you, when you're dealing with, say, S-Corps, LLCs, can you kind of give a quick, I mean, rundown of what you see or what are the advantages of, few advantages of each of those?
1: Um, What we're finding today is most farming operations because of USDA payment limitations are being operated as general partnerships. And that has created um, some complexities when it comes to tax issues because of the social security or the self-employment tax that applies to a general partnership. And we end up having a multi-tiered operation where we have a general partnership, we have some LLCs that own the general partnership, and then we have some individuals that own the LLCs. And of course, You know, most farmers' offices, their dashboard of the pickup truck, and trying to keep all that straight from the dashboard can be a a little complicated. So, um, you know, typically um, when it comes time to count heads from the USDA for payment limitation purposes, they want to have some risk or some exposure to the the farm operation and the farm debt. So with an S-corporation or or an LLC taxes an S-corporation, we don't get the same head count. Within the same number of operators as we would if we had a general partnership. So in this case, the general partnership typically comes out better when you have more than one payment limitation for a, for a farm activity. Um, some other issues that, that we, we deal with is, um, especially when it comes to succession planning with entity choice, is um, we have a lot of farmers who, who, whose goal is to keep the farm together even though not all the heirs or not all the children will be participating in the farm in the future but um, they don't want to leave sections of the land to each child and, and then risk the farm breaking up or falling apart. So they'll use a trust um, where the, the heirs that are going to continue to, to farm, uh, farm conduct the farming operation, but all the children or all the heirs can benefit from the, from the value provided by the trust.
2: Ashley, does bringing in a succession plan as a member in an LLC, does that complicate it or does it make it easier or what's your experience?
1: Well again we're going back to most of these entities or general partnerships if there's more than one payment limitation mm-hmm. so introducing an LLC would complicate that and pot- potentially reduce the number of payment limitations available to a farmer so if the if the idea behind the if the structure of the farming operation is designed to maximize payment limitations, yes, an LLC or an S corporation would complicate that now when it comes to succession planning um, there's some some estate planning techniques that we can use with an LLC, such as um, uh, some discounts related to the value of the farm that would potentially reduce the value of the farm below the estate tax amount or reduce the amount of estate taxes that could be owed. So there's some trade-offs there. But generally for operations, an LLC could um, could interfere with a, a plan to maximize payment limitations.
2: That's a good point.
0: Very much so. At what point, size operation, do you advise, um, without a bias point of view, do you advise them coming to speak with the CPA? Well,
1: obviously for, for income tax preparation and, and a big part of, of a farmer's uh, financial financial plan would include tax planning. Um, farmer Farm income comes in, you may spend the money on crops one year but not recognize the income to the next year, and and without proper planning or, or Uh, proper anticipation of those taxes, uh, you could write yourself a much larger check than what's necessary. Especially with the complexities of having a general partnership where self-employment tax comes into play, it's possible that you could lose $100,000 one year, the next year you make $100,000, you don't owe any income tax because of the nature of the loss being carried forward, but you'd owe $15,000 in Social Security taxes and have it made a dime, simply because of of the year of when the income occurred. So I do think it's important that, that farmers have some idea of, of the tax complexities of that apply to a farming operation and, and the timing of income and deductions to kind of keep those checks to the government to a minimum.
0: Oh, most definitely. I mean, in in a time where margins are tighter than ever in agriculture, um, speaking from experience, um, being one that wanted to push push doing my taxes to the max, um, I've, I've profited or benefited from going to a CPA now. Um, and if you're tuning in today and maybe on the fence at least just go have the conversation like like coming in to see Brant and I at the at the office you don't have to get along with us that day you don't have to sign up and use the CPA that day but it, it helps to build your knowledge um, a little bit and then it will be able to you don't have to pull the trigger that day necessarily you just going to uh, build your knowledge of your operation the tax benefits out there um, and it just it makes you a better businessman or businesswoman going down down the road
1: and I think any, and certainly my office will, and I think most of my colleagues in town will um, you know, provide an initial consultation, allow you to come in and, and ask your questions and see if you're comfortable with the person. And I think that's awful and very important or awful important to, to make sure you're comfortable with your advisor, that you can ask questions and, and get answers you can understand.
0: All right, y'all. One thing we're going to bring up from earlier on in this episode is the discussion of secession planning and kind of how and when to bring that conversation up and cross that bridge. Um, I'm seeing that personally at our family farm. You know, it's what, at what point is the time to hand over the keys? And it comes from both ends. I mean, it has to, the the ones that are holding the keys have to be ready to turn it over, and there's a perfect time for that. Um, but there's also a time where the person ha- being handed the keys needs to step up and do a little bit more than historically has been done, whether it's just being more involved in day-to-day operations, because you have to, you have to prove to the, the head honchos of the operation currently that, that you're ready so Brand, um and your in your past experiences what have you seen what what have your customers asked of you and and when they get done talking with you whom should they formally speak with to get that process rolling
2: probably one of the best succession plans that I've been involved in, uh, in involved a matriarch and it was actually uh, somebody that was outside of the family uh, that had been working for him for for several years and and the patriarch started looking out uh, three to five years and and wanted to bring in the succession plan, who was an employee that had been with him and done a really good job and really had a lot of buy-in on the success of it. And um, again, the farmers, uh, family members did not did not want to come back and farm, but uh, all of the parties were in agreement that they wanted to keep the farm together and the whole operation. Um, there was actually some uh, co-op stock involved, uh, real estate involved, and equipment. And the the, the family, um, the the farmer, set it up where the succession, the successor, started coming in and actually sitting down with her and looking at the, the financials, making financial decisions. Um, so not so they were also they were learning what was going out on out of the farm and uh, cultivating a management out there, but they were learning the books and and they were um, that way they were set up for success all the way around um, and. I think the farmer probably went about it in a in a good way in that um, they were willing to to turn over the reins. There wasn't any um, drawback or hold back or anything. They they were very happy that that go forward simply because both of them had talked and realized what they wanted out of it. And the farmer wanted a continued income, but you know he'd been in the business for forty plus years, and he just really had put a lot of time and effort and gone through some hard times and experienced some good times and he just wanted to see that operation succeed and uh, it was a great starting point for the young man coming in behind him so um that that succession plan is still in place both parties are happy um some of the land that they were renting they had they went out and got long-term uh, land leases uh, they had worked through uh, equipment ownership and trading of that equipment and um the farmer, I believe, earned kept a salary coming out of the farm for a while and, and along had some retirement income from the purchase of those assets. Um, and it, it was somewhat at a, at a reduced reduced price, um, just simply for his sweat equity that he'd put in over the years. Right. Billy, let me add one other thing to that. Um, the farmer and the successor both agreed to have conversations over about a two-year period. So they went through the farming cycle, uh, they talked about the ins and outs and ups and downs, and uh, they agreed to meet uh, on a quarterly basis and just kind of go over uh, what had happened and how they would have handled it had they had they moved forward on that succession plan at that point. So they really had a nice written agreement uh, when it came time for the, the succession plan to take place.
1: I had a, a gentleman who explained to me in, in um, pretty practical terms the difficulty or the obstacles to implementing a succession plan. And and he said that once you wipe somebody's butt, you really don't care what their opinion is. (laughs) And, and that seems to be the, that seems to be one of the barriers to, especially legacy farms when you're passing it down from one generation to the next is, is, is the son or the daughter may be involved in the farm, but they're only involved in the agricultural part of it. The, the, the planting the crops or the, the tending of the livestock, they're not involved in the business aspect of it. Dad takes care of that. And he, he never lets loose of those reins so if something were to happen to dad unexpectedly um the children are not prepared to to step into those shoes and and fulfill that they're not they're not certain on, on usda programs they're not certain how to deal with lenders and the banks they're not certain how to deal with landlords because dad always took care of that one of the most successful succession plans that i've seen and, and in this case both generations are still farming and still still active on the farm is is the the farmer that the father um, set up his son with his own small farm. He acquired him, helped him acquire some land, and, and just left that that those acres to the son to farm. He had to come up with his own financing. He had to come up with his own um, you know, agricultural you know policy or or how what he was going to plant when he was going to plant it, uh, deal with the vendors and and the suppliers himself. And and one day when the farm does pass down to the son, he's going to be in a great position to continue and keep it going.
0: I completely agree. And um, going back on an article y'all worked together on a few years ago on our website, uh, just rereading it, I mean, there's some things that even as a lender that I don't know that are are taxable and employee retention credits, uh, paid sick and family leave, FSA program payments, crop insurance payments, all things like this are are small things that you can let slip through the cracks if you're not dealing with a professional and are definitely worth and sometimes will pay the the bill that it it costs to file the tax returns with some some professionals so don't um shorthand your operation and try to do it all yourself uh we're i'm the most guilty of that statement right there but um it pays off in the long term and allows for some growth and some of those
1: programs were were related specifically to to the pandemic relief that the government provided such as the payroll protection um, program loans ppp those are pretty well over with but there is still time to claim the employee retention credit and um, we're actually do, working on that now uh, here towards the end of 2022. And that, those, uh, that credit, which can be a, a decent-sized amount of money available uh, to, the, to employers, not just farmers, but all employers, um, is still available to claim.
0: All right, as we conclude today, I want to say one thing. An operation's financial health is crucial to its overall success and longevity. So that's why it's important to engage in business planning such as farm tax preparation, Um, as well as strategic planning for the future of your operation is so essential when planning for its resiliency and the future generations. Well, y'all, it's uh, my favorite time of the year. It's definitely fall. The leaves are falling off and that concludes today's podcast. So Ashley and Brant, we appreciate y'all joining us today to read a transcript of today's podcast. Visit our website at swgafarmcredit.com. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified of our new episodes as well as follow us on Facebook and Instagram for great industry resources. Thanks for listening and happy harvest.